This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave in the Piney Woods of North Central Florida. A God's country, by golly. And uh, we are in the Melon Law Studio. Melon Law is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Gators. And we're protected 24-7, 365 uh, by crime prevention. And that is, of course, uh, Randy Elrad and John Pastore. And all our great sponsors whom you see uh, coming across our screen. And uh, we appreciate them, and we appreciate people who donate to us. Um, we are uh, awaiting uh, a connection, please, if you will give us a little bit of time, make sure we got it all together, uh, with the Senior Policy Fellow at Americans for Prosperity and um, Paragon Health Institute Public Advisor. Uh, evidently, Arlington, Virginia, has taken a significant step uh, toward uh, – giving individuals more control over their health care. Um, the um, legislation codifies workplace choice plans and authorizes multiple employer health plans to promote insurance portability and enhance health insurance affordability. Um, that's a mouthful. And it's um, something, hopefully, that is uh, going to be um, come more of an option. One of the things that concerns many of us is that uh, we are watching the European healthcare system with dismay and the Canadian healthcare system with dismay, uh, where the doctors are all employers. I mean, all employees. They don't own their own business, their own practice. They really can't afford to when they get up to the higher specialties because of the equipment and all the fantastic technology, which is now usable uh, in a practical way to help us stay healthy. Um, the people, the gatekeepers, so to speak, the internal medicine people, your primary care people, uh, your, your regular doctor, so to speak, is, um, still very much uh, in play, but it's, um, not the specialist. And so this whole concept of healthcare has sort of been taken over really by the government. And the government is the one who pays the bills. There doesn't seem to be any practical alternative to that. So um, that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, whenever uh, we get a connection here with our guest, Dean Clancy, um, hopefully that's going to be forthright because yours truly doesn't possess any expertise at talking, of course, about healthcare. It's um, not my bailiwick, except to say uh, that I have, of course, used it. And the older you get, the more you will use it. And um, unless you're just some really lucky guy um, who can kind of get through this whole thing without a lot of serious instances or bumps in the road, um, I'm going to hang out here a minute and, and see if we can get a connection 
with Dean Clancy. I know production is now calling him and uh, seeing if we have a glitch somewhere in the system that uh, doesn't allow us to get uh, um, through to him. Here we go. There's my good friend. Hello, Dean. Hello. How are you? Did you have any problem? We have to get a hold of you. Are you okay? Yeah, we. I couldn't get it to work on my other phone. So now I'm, uh, no, look at that. Sorry. Well, we can see the top of your head. <laughs> there you go. All right. I'm trying to, trying to change my background here. Whoop. Yeah, we'll give you, give you a minute or two. We got a minute. All right. Super. Thank you so much. I was doing a poor, very poor job of imitating Dean Classic. <laughs> All right. I, I was about to run out of my healthcare expertise. Oh, dear. Well, you've got uh, more than most, so <laughs> sure you did great. Okay. You're looking good. Well, thank you. All right. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead. I'm ready. Well, I'm interested, of course, in the printout here that I have about what's happened in Virginia. And um, if I'm reading this correctly, and I was just sharing this with the audience, yeah. um, here's my concern, a lot of our concerns. With, maybe we can springboard from this. There was an article the other day, as I'm sure you're aware, about the um, British doctors going on strike because mm-hmm. they weren't being paid enough, the lawyers actually making more. And that kind of buzzed me because we know what a dismal situation Canada and Europe has where these doctors are all employees. Right. And it seems to me that that's the direction we're moving in here because who pays the bills? The government. And if you can launch from that and I'll sit quietly and listen, I'd like to know how this whole thing got to be the way it is and what this uh, Virginia situation has to do with it. So I'm going to sit back and listen well, uh, you're right that uh, in Britain, for example, socialized medicine is in crisis. Uh, doctors uh, go on strike. They're employees of the government, essentially, bureaucrats. And um, uh, there's shortages and rationing, people standing in line for care. They actually will deny care to people above a certain age for certain items and services. All of it is because they're trying to promise something they cannot deliver, which is free, high-quality health care for everybody at the point of service with no involvement of market forces. And so you always have a misallocation of resources. So, yes, the British healthcare system is in crisis, but our American system is moving in that very direction. We have local hospital monopolies, for example, all over the country that have been, in effect, buying up the local physician practice groups. They're buying up the doctors and converting them into employees of the hospital monopolies. And the result is less uh, competition, less choice for patients and consumers, and more um, uh, problems, more hassle. Um, the, uh, The American system is moving in a slow motion way towards what they have in socialized medicine countries. It's a creeping government takeover of healthcare, and it's fueled mostly by government policy. For example, those local hospital monopolies are fueled by uh, payment systems in Medicare, for example. They'll pay a um, hospital-based physician two or three times as much money as a 
as an independent uh, community physician for the exact same item or service, that creates an incentive for the hospital to want to, in effect, turn the physician into a hospital employee. And it, of course, uh, rewards the physician for doing just that. So you have these physician practices. They'll just slap the word hospital on the door. They're doing exactly what they've always done, but now they're getting paid twice or three times as much. And uh, the result is they've lost their independence. And so we do have a serious problem in this country, and we do need to address it. Well, does this um, um, U.S. House or Virginia thing, does it address it? Does it begin to address it? The choice plan? Oh, yes. The choice plan is actually quite exciting. It begins to address it. I would not by any stretch say that it solves the problem in this country, but it's a first good step. The U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill a couple weeks ago now, maybe three weeks, called the CHOICE Act, Choices in All Capital Letters. The bill number is H.R. 3799, for those who are interested in looking at it, 3799. And what does it do? It does two things uh, that basically make workplace health benefits more portable and more affordable. And how does it do that? Well, it makes uh, workplace benefits more portable by allowing employers to put money in an account for an employee that the employee can then use to buy private, personally owned health insurance. That's currently not allowed. The the Trump administration did uh, pass a rule or issue a rule that basically allows it. Most employers have never heard of it, and very few are actually doing it. This is Congress saying, we're going to put that on the statute book, make it a permanent option that no president can simply rescind. And uh, they call them choice plans. So instead of the employer offering a group, you know, workplace health insurance plan, the employer simply gives money to the employees with a tax break attached. That's the key part. This this is money that is tax advantaged. And uh, so it will encourage uh, folks to to get insurance who today may find that the employer's offer of coverage is simply too expensive. It's going to really help uh, small businesses, especially. And uh, it'll be great for Uber drivers and people like that, independent contractors. Um, But uh, the the second part of the bill actually is the one that helps them the most. And that's called multiple employer welfare arrangements or MIWAs. Some people will call them association health plans. And the basic idea is that small businesses can band together and get insurance for all of their respective employees at a single group discount rate. And uh, there, your independent contractors, your self-employed, they can band together. As long as they're not banding together just to buy insurance, they have to band together for some other bona fide purpose. But once they do that, they can get good rates on insurance. And this, as I say, can be a real blessing for the Uber driver, the gig worker, and so on. They have trouble finding affordable uh, coverage today. So the Choice uh, Act does those two things, choice plans and Association Health Plans, or MIWAs, and it has passed the House of Representatives. It's actually gotten through the House. The Republicans pushed it through. Democrats opposed it uh, uniformly, alas, Um, which is too bad because uh, before the vote, Democrats never criticized either of these ideas. Joe Biden issued a letter saying, I'll veto this bill if it gets to my desk. And Democrats fell in behind him lockstep, even though, as I say, is an idea none of them, to my knowledge, had ever opposed. 
So uh, politics seems to have entered in. But at Americans for Prosperity, we're hopeful that we can get the Choice Act through the Senate as well. Put it on President Biden's desk. Make him uh, explain why he doesn't want people to have insurance that's more affordable and portable. You know, uh, I was just sitting here trying to wonder what his reasoning would be. Is he endorsed? Is this somehow threaten Obamacare? Let's, let's talk about those uh, that cross. Well, yeah, no, that's a great question. I think what it does is it it uh, slows down that government takeover because it strengthens uh, workplace health benefits, which have been slowly eroding in recent years. Basically, the progressives and the left, the Democrats, they just want everybody to be in a government health plan, Medicare for all, they call it. It would be more like Medicaid HMOs for all. It would not be good quality health care. It would be like Britain, you know, where people stand in line and uh, don't necessarily have access to care. Uh, and so the, anything that strengthens the private sector, I think they are a little bit uh, wary of. In Biden's case, he's clearly running for reelection on what I call Medi-Scare or health scare. He's trying to basically say, uh, the Republicans are coming after your health care. We've got to stop them. Now, it, there's no basis for that whatsoever, but that's the assertion that he's making. And I think that's in part because I don't see that he has any other accomplishment or issue that he can run on. He, he really doesn't have inflation, jobs in the economy, doesn't have, and he's trying to, to, to he's trying to spin it as, you know, I've done great things, but the evidence doesn't bear that out you know, foreign policy, he really doesn't have much. So Medi-Scare, health, you know, scaring people over health care seems to be his strategy. And uh, therefore, he just has to oppose whatever the Republicans support, even if it's perfectly sensible and, you know, centrist and common sense. I'm with Dean Clancy, who's a senior policy fellow at Americans for Prosperity and a Paragon Health Institute public advisor. Very important uh, group of people here who advocate for us and choice in one of the most important parts of our lives, and that's health insurance. You know, one of the things that happened, Dean, that I'm aware of because I have a family member affected, is um, when Obamacare came along, employers decided, well, we're going to cut you back to part time. That way right. we won't have to buy you insurance. Can you explain that? How sure. that all went down? And where we are with that now? Right. Yeah, the Affordable Care Act uh, of 2010, and by the way, that's a an ironic name. It should have been called the Unaffordable Care Act because, um, you know, health insurance premiums have doubled since it was enacted, and the amount you have to spend out of pocket before your insurance even kicks in has tripled, and your ability to access uh, the doctors and hospitals you want that might be uh, convenient to you, that has really gone down, all, all as a result of that federal legislation. One of the things the bill did was it said, employers, you must offer um, this very, you know, a costly uh, health benefit package, this, you know, expensive insurance to all of your full-time employees. And that created an incentive uh, for employers to employ a lot fewer full-time employees, more part-time employees, as defined in the law. And uh, and that has happened. And so... Um, I mean, employers struggle with this because it's just very expensive. A lot of employees are in the funny position of maybe their employer does offer something, but they're part they've been made part time, so they have no access, or they're full time, but the 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 coverage 
it's not really affordable, even though technically under the definitions uh, coming out of Washington, it is considered affordable. And that means that they have access to no other federal subsidy. Uh, one thing that uh, the Affordable Care Act did is it created this system where you can go out and buy your own insurance online with a generous federal subsidy, as long as you're below a certain income and your employer does not offer affordable coverage. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, as I say, a lot of that coverage is not truly affordable uh, for people. So they're they're in a bind. The Choice Act that passed the House of Representatives a few weeks ago tries to help begin to solve this problem by making workplace health benefits uh, less expensive and more portable. Well, I was um, hopeful that pressure will be put on Biden should it get to his desk to do the right thing. But uh, the politicalization of every issue in our lives, unfortunately, is what's driving so much conversation now, rather than a real examination of the issues on their own merit. We have a question here from a viewer. Um, Something similar to the Choice Program, been around for a while. Um, uh, He's aware of something the home builders had that used to offer health insurance as a group. Has that gone away, or what's the status of that? This viewer wants to know. Well, uh, do you know? The, yeah, the, the, there, there, there are multiple employer welfare arrangements today, uh, and that means you get a, a number of employers, usually in the same trade or industry, that get together and they offer benefits. It could, it could be health care or it could also be other kinds of benefits to all of the employees of their respective companies. That does go on today. What's different in this legislation is that uh, the businesses now uh, would not have to be in the same trade or industry. They could be in the same geographic region, for example. Gotcha. And and uh, they you can in, it includes the self-employed, which is not allowed today. The self-employed is a person. It's just you know a business of one. I'm the employer and the employee. I'm my own employee, if you will. And those folks are shut out now. So under the Choice Act they would be able to uh, band together or to join these small business uh, MIWAs, we call them. And, um, and that, that's not allowed today. Question to you here is another one I've always been interested in. Um, are the emergency rooms operating as operating, functioning as primary care physician for immigrants? To a large extent, I think that is true. I don't have statistics, but um People who have no health insurance, and and if you are a excuse me an illegal alien, an unlawful entrant to the United States, or an undocumented person, uh, you're not going to be eligible for the various government health insurance subsidy programs like Affordable Care Act subsidies or Medicaid, for example. Uh, you you can't be on the rolls. So where are you going to go? You're going to go to the emergency room of the local hospital, and uh, that is the most expensive. Uh, health care that is available in America. And of course, it's unpleasant. You have to wait in line. But the federal law says the hospital has to see you. They have to actually look at what's wrong with you and stabilize you. They don't have to give you full treatment, uh, but they can't just turn you way, away before even screening you. That's federal law. Um, it, interestingly, a lot of uh, immigrants, legal immigrants, uh, go on Medicaid. There's, there's a waiting period, but they can go on it and they get on it. And then they go to the emergency room, even though Medicaid supposedly gives them access to doctors. And the reason they go to the emergency room instead is because 
Medicaid is such a poorly designed program that a lot of doctors simply won't see Medicaid uh, patients. So these folks end up in the emergency room anyway. So it's a problem. And I'm not sure why the uh, the question was asked, but I hope that helped it, to answer it. Well, that's interesting. Um, if a doctor is employed by a hospital corporation, the hospital emergency room can't turn away the immigrant. But it sounds as if the doctor who's an employee of the same hospital can. Yeah, if it were a physician's office and the, 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 the doctor were technically an employee of a hospital system, uh, yeah, he, he could turn uh, the person away. It's only the emergency room where the, the, uh, the law says you must screen everyone who walks in the door, regardless of income or immigration status. Um, but yes. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess uh, uh, while we got you, we need to talk about some other things that are on people's minds here. We've been discussing lately, and I hear this pretty pretty regularly from, we have a big teaching hospital here, Shans Hospital. And, our, and uh, it is becoming the medical schools more and more politicized. Can you speak to that? Diversity, equity, inclusion, all this stuff is becoming the top criteria rather than meritocracy. Is that debate in your radar and not on your plate in any shape? Well, yes, certainly, certainly like a lot of folks, I I see the the news stories uh, about how medicine, like so many other professions and industries, is becoming uh, woke, if you will. And so, yeah, you, you know, it seems to me that uh, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion are, are really very tangential concerns when you're dealing with a person who's got a health problem. You know, it, you know how many uh, doctors of which ethnicity or nurses of which ethnicity you happen to have working in a place seems like a much less important consideration than do we have the right people to do the job? Uh, I don't care what color my doctor or nurse is, as long as they're competent. And, um, you know, it is it is a problem. This is a, it's a cultural fight that's going on. It affects so many industries. And uh, we do have, a, you know, an administration in Washington that's very much supportive of this kind of redefinition of, you know, what quality means. And it's unfortunate. At AFP, we focused more on what I'll call the economic aspects of healthcare, making sure the patient can afford and have access to the care that he or she needs when he or she needs it. Um, but this uh, this wokeification of medicine is very concerning. Might it somehow affect the economics? I'm trying to extrapolate here what you're talking about. Um, the... Here's what I think is happening, and I'm, I want your, you know, maybe your thoughts. Sure. I have a lot of friends who are now getting out of the medical world. They're in their 70s. Right. They've got incredible expertise. Fantastic doctors. And they just can't put up with the system. Right. Um, they're surgeons that have operated 16 hours a day, you know, most of their lives. And they're angry. I mean, because of my show, they come to me and they talk to me about it. Right. And um, some of them are actually, I think, getting out of the business at the peak of their ability. They've got so much diagnostic skill, for example, which has taken a lifetime of 
discerning what is really worth worrying about and what isn't. Just in terms of interpretation of lab results, you know, the young ones tend to cover themselves. I'm going to give you every test known to man in case I get sued is, is what I'm thinking is happening. And the older ones say, yeah, you know, that ain't no big deal. I've been practicing for 45 years. That ain't no big deal. You know, is right. that in, is that in your I'm just really picking your mind, your expertise uh, here. I'm really yeah. the whole gamut. Yeah. Look, uh, what is healthcare? It's it's the doctor and the patient. And that's really all that matters. And um, and really, at, at, at Americans for Prosperity, our whole philosophy is let's just remove barriers between those two people, the patient and the doctor, so they can do what they've always done. And it's a sacred relationship. And it has become now burdened down by intrusive third parties, not just the hospital monopolies that we've been talking about, but also health insurance companies, uh, government bureaucracies, foolish regulations, mandates, and payment systems, all of which are leading to this problem of physician burnout. And uh, you even have the funny thing of right now, uh, a physician who maybe doesn't want to work for the hospital system anymore wants to kind of uh, ease back and just practice medicine, decides to go into practice for himself or herself, uh, maybe even to do what's called direct primary care or uh, direct patient care, where basically you just charge uh, your patients a monthly subscription to be available to them and to help them. And there's no insurance company involvement at all. And uh, that can be a great way to practice medicine because it's just you and the patient again. You've gotten those uh, meddlers out of the exam room. Problem is, some of these local hospital monopolies impose a non-compete agreement on their physicians. And it basically says, you cannot practice medicine within a certain radius of this hospital system. And you you can't do anything that you did here. And often it will say, you can't even do things like direct primary care, where it's really not in competition with the hospital itself. It's just, you're practicing medicine outside, you know, without our permission, basically. And we need reform of those barriers like that so that the physician and the patient could get, can get together. We also need to arm the patient with the dollars because power follows dollars. So, you know, you, grocery store, gas station, who's in charge? The customer. Customer's coming in with dollars. So you have price transparency. You you have, you know, it's all right there for you. You can compare and you can decide. And so prices are always falling uh, and the quality is always rising. Well, except when we have inflation. <laughs> That's a separate problem. Uh, so the point is, uh, for these physicians who are burning out, we need to remove those barriers and also empower the patients. And then I think you'll see a, a renaissance. You'll see a lot of physicians finding that the practice of medicine is what they always wanted it to be. We um, come up on a bomb the hour break for our weather. Are you able to stay with us a while longer, Dean? Sure, I'd love to. Um, a couple other issues I want to bring up. One is we have a uh, retired physician that comes on the show once in a while who whose niche, I, won't, I don't want to say a niche, but who's concerned about doctor suicides in this situation. Um, I don't know if you have any data on that or you have run across it, but not all the people who are hanging up their practice at a certain point in their life are happy about it. And, um, you know, they're quite despondent in a matter of fact about it. Uh, that's one big, big area of concern I didn't know anything about until this guest brought it up. Um, maybe that's something... 
uh, it might be of interest. Also, to what extent we've had physicians on and actually advocate this teleconferencing feasible where the doc, you know, the patient doesn't have to go to the office, mm-hmm. all that sort of business. And uh, be right back with you. We're going to take a break here on the Ward Scott Files for the weather and uh, be back with Dean Clancy in a moment. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! All right, welcome back to Ward Scott Files. Ward's weather report brought to you by Lewis Oil. Fossil fuel, don't be afraid of it. Come on, you got to fill your vehicle up with it. Chevron Station's great supporter of the show. Well, we've got a little relief from the heat here in the Piney Woods of North Central Florida. We're running in the high 80s for today. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it, but um, we're going to get some rain. So perhaps we got a little better trip from the sun than, say, Arizona does. But I ran across a story that I thought was pretty interesting. Now, it's coming from CNN. So you've got to kind of take that into account. But did you know that butterflies are impacted by climate change? Well, certainly the CNN people think they are. 
They need warmth from the sun to function. But when it really gets hot, they can't adjust to the air temperature and their thermal buffering and thermal tolerance systems crash and their physical acts don't function anymore. And the ones with larger wings use that surface area to absorb heat when needed. So they're the difficult ones, the beautiful butterflies with the big wing. I don't know. I thought I'd heard everything about climate change, but um, this seems to be another wrinkle. Yes, I do love butterflies, and they're very important to us. But um, evidently, climate change is going to burn up their wings. I don't know. Wasn't there a Greek mythology about that? Be right back here now with Dean Clancy, who's a senior policy fellow at Americans for Prosperity and Paragon Health Institute. Basically, their concerns are economic and how the medical system functions or doesn't function uh, financially in terms of our ability to afford it and what we get. But we've persuaded Dean to kind of veer off track a little bit and talk about some of the concerns that you've got here on the uh, chat line here. And one of the ones which I brought up with him at the break was whether or not, since doctors increasingly are employees of a hospital corporation, whether or not they are cajoled, so we say, into having to take the COVID vaccination um, or they can't practice there. And Dean's willing to talk a little bit about that, I think. Where does that go, B? Yeah, I'll be honest, uh, Ward, I'm not uh, an expert on physician burnout and suicide. I, I It's obviously tragic. And um, I cannot believe that uh, the corporatization of healthcare doesn't have something to, to do with it. I'm not saying it would be the only cause. There's a lot going on in our culture and our world. But, uh, but the fact is the practice of medicine has changed, and not for the better, for the practitioners, for doctors and nurses. It's gotten much worse. They have less freedom. They, uh, they make less money. They work harder, and uh, in some ways, they're less respected and appreciated. They have, you know, that profession has slid, and uh, it's not their fault. I think it's the fault of a, mu- a bunch of things, government policy and, uh, and uh, you know, t- these monopolies. I, if I had to, you know, I tend to blame everything on, on monopoly uh, that's bad in our lives and go- bad government policy, but I, I, it, I'm sure it's not the only cause of physician suicide. I'm sure it contributes. And teleconferencing is another question here. Take up some of the slack in patient-physician relationships. Yes, absolutely. Telehealth, telemedicine. Telehealth, yeah. uh, Is is absolutely a wonderful thing. And wherever um, patients are simply paying for services directly, either in cash or through a monthly subscription, telehealth is generally standard because it's more convenient for the doctor and the patient. Also, it's nice when doctors can consult with each other electronically. And um, during the, the, the pandemic, I found it interesting that they allowed patients to use telehealth under Medicare, which had not been allowed up to that point, from their own home. The, the existing rule, underlying rule, was, well, you've got to go to some special facility to do telehealth, and you know, which is really outdated. And so now they were letting patients do it from their home, but they weren't letting physicians do it from their home. It had to be from the doctor's office. It's like, okay, which bureaucrat thought up these rules? 
And the fact is, when you get rid of the bureaucracy and uh, third-party party meddling, telehealth and teleconferencing just happens naturally. You know, we have the technology, and it's not just Zoom calls. It's remote moder- monitoring of your vital signs. It, you know, they have teledentistry. They have teleophthalmology. They can monitor your heart rate and, you know, basically alert you and alert your doctor whenever there's a potential problem. Technology can do these wonderful things. The main barrier to telehealth, uh, telemedicine, has been government and insurance companies worried that people will use it too much and basically it will cost the people writing the checks too much money, uh, which I think is terribly short-sighted. At Americans for Prosperity, we actually did a study. Uh, We joined with the Progressive Policy Institute, you know, over on the left, And we did a study of Medicare uh, claims data during the pandemic. This is real Medicare claims data. And what we found was um, with telehealth, people went to the emergency room less often. And that saved taxpayers money. Yeah, Medicare had to pay for those telehealth uh, services, but they didn't have to pay for emergency room visits, which are much more expensive. So taxpayers actually saved money. Plus, you, you reduce the spread of infection. So it's just a, and I think it does help make uh, medicine better. What, one thing that uh, folks are concerned about, especially older folks, is they don't want it to be only telehealth. They do want to be able to see their physician in person. And that's absolutely right. Some things can only be done in person, and that should be an option too. That's very interesting. I had never thought of that, Dean, about Medicare paying or not paying and having perhaps a quota on the payment. Um, I know that I've had doctors say to me in the office, well, we run that test on you, but your insurance won't pay for it right now. And it's Medicare insurance. Um, So the decision is not being made by the doctor. It's being made by the businessman. That's right. And I have another story about that. I have a friend who is now no longer in the medical business, was a doctor for years. I mean, and as he got older, he became more of a kind of counsel to patients he'd taken care of for 50 years, you know. And uh, anyway, he was a standard item, pillar in the community here. And people would go in to see him to get counseled by him about an ache in the back or, you know, what this meant. And and he took time with him. And one day he called me and he said, uh, well, Lord, I'm no longer practicing and um, I said, why? I knew he was reaching, re- quote, unquote, retirement age. He said, our group was taken over by a corporation. And the first thing is the guy came and knocked on my office door and said, you're only seeing 15 people a day. You've got to start seeing 30. And he said, yeah, but these 15 people are the ones I've taken care of all forever. And I take time with them. And that matters to them. And basically, they said, well, it doesn't matter to us. <laughs> We've got to have more. And they went through, the, it was probably 20 doctors in this group. And he went through them all. Well, the young ones or the ones in mid-professional life couldn't afford to say what he could say. Okay, you can have it. He helped start the group. You know? Right. That's how much has changed. 
he wasn't given an opportunity because a business guy came along and said more productivity. At a time in his life and the lives of the people he took care of, it was a different pace. I don't know what to make of that, except that I don't see a solution for that. If we're going to have an increasing takeover by the business people, is this, are the people, the government taking it over? I know we can't crawl into the motivation, the minds of the government. What's their motivation? Is it just purely political? It's certainly not to provide the best health care. You're absolutely right. And, and the phenomenon you're describing where, uh, you know, it's a conveyor belt and it's the you I've got to get the most patients through the door as possible. It, it does not, it's not better health care. It's obviously worse health care. In fact, what a physician will often resort to is because he or she does not have enough time to actually get to know the patient's problem and, and health status. Just write a prescription, send them on their on their way. And then if it doesn't work, well, then they'll be back and they'll, there'll be another claim and another payment. But it's a conveyor belt. It's not good quality health care. It happens uh, because the, uh, the whole system has been set up, thanks to various government laws and payment systems, to reward that sort of thing. And, um, and, and you know, basically the physician spends as much time as possible just trying to make sure he gets paid and gets paid as many times as possible. Imagine if instead of having one or two guests on your program in an hour, you had to do 30 guests per hour. You know, you probably wouldn't get very deep in your your interviews. Right. right. And, and it's the same thing for physicians. And you can see why they would burn out because they're not practicing health care. Now they're working for an insurance company. And you say, wait a minute, is it the government's problem or is it the private sector that's causing the problem? And the answer is ultimately the government. The government is regulating and massively funding these private insurance companies. I mean, the Medicaid program has evolved into basically a program where we transfer hundreds of billions of dollars every year into the hands of private insurance companies, HMOs. Similarly, with the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act subsidy program, that's another one that's transferring hundreds of billions of dollars a year to insurance companies. At Americans for Prosperity, we, we, we say, look, let's fund patients not insurance companies. Let's reform all these government programs so the patient gets a subsidy, you know, a safety net, help to, to make sure that uh, he or she doesn't fall through the cracks, but let the patient control that money. When that happens, then you're going to see the the, metal, the middlemen, the meddlers disappearing from the exam room, and medicine will start to look like like it used to, where the doctor actually spent time with you, got to know you as a human being, got to know your your health conditions. And uh, a key way to do that is to transform all these subsidies that we have now into what is essentially a fixed amount voucher, a generous voucher that everybody is entitled to, and then you use it wherever you want. And what you don't spend on insurance, you should be able to just put in a tax-free health savings account and you know use that on out-of-pocket medical expenses or future insurance expenses or build it up into a nest egg for your medical expenses in future years. If we just did that, we would see a, a, a transformation of healthcare in this downward spiral which is leading not only to insurance companies dominating the system, but ultimately to government ending up just taking over the whole system, that spiral would stop and reverse. I'm sitting here listening to that uh, hopeful. I'm an older guy. And I still see us, in spite of your best efforts and 
my concerns and our viewers, Miss Net, drifting toward Britain. I don't, uh, Dean, I, I just see us going towards, and all for political reasons, not for medical reasons. I don't hear any good medical arguments for becoming like Britain. Um, on the show, I've had doctors in Canada call, you know, big guests who come here for their medical care. They wouldn't dare be treated and, and can't even get in line, you know, for say right. cancer treatment or anything like that. Um, to what extent, here's another issue that you may have been thinking about at some point. Do the doctors talk to each other? You know, does the cardiologist know what the uh, neurologist is saying? Does the neurologist know what, um, in the, you, know, you know, you know what I'm saying? Um, mm-hmm. Does that, I think I have a feeling that's kind of, they're in silos as well. Yeah, there's a heavy specialization in medicine. The good good part of that is that they go real deep and they really know their subject matter. The downside is they may not know very much at all about other specials specialties. And so they do have to collaborate. And you want them to be have the freedom and the incentive to collaborate and not just be in silos. I don't know what the solution to that is, except in general, I think, if you let people be free and let market forces work, you're, you're going to get good solutions. They're going to come together to. Is that, to a, real, is that, a, is that a real issue they're in? Um, could, well, you know, the, people talk about a physician shortage. My view is there's not really a physician shortage, but there is a misallocation, if you will. Most physicians are going into specialties because they pay better. Primary care doesn't pay nearly as well. So you don't have as many doing that. And the misallocation comes not just from that, but also from various government regulations and so on that basically encourage uh, that, I'll call it over-specialization. In a free market, you'll have whatever it is that patients and consumers want. And instead, we don't have a free market. So, um, you know, once again, the answer seems to come back to let's put the patient in charge, remove barriers between patients and doctors, and then, and then you'll get whatever you know, there won't be, you won't even hear people talking about a physician shortage because it won't be a problem. Got a question here. To what extent can nurse practitioners and physicians assistants, that sort of business, uh, once again, take up some of the slack? Is that an increasing phenomenon? Well, yeah, every state uh, decides, you know, what are the things that a physician can do versus what can a nurse do versus what can a physician assistant do versus what can a pharmacist do and so on. They define the professions, they license them, they require certain education and training, certain number of hours of practice. Uh, Our view at Americans for Prosperity is um, you, the patient, should have lots of options And there are, in fact, things that a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant can do that it doesn't have to be a physician. And we would remove some of those barriers. For example, there are laws that say that you have to basically pay a physician for the privilege of being in practice as a nurse practitioner and and do it for so many months or years before you can practice independently. Sometimes you you can kind of never really practice independently. We think that's wrong. Certainly, uh, the nurse can't do everything a physician can do because they're not trained and licensed to do everything, but they should be able to do whatever they are licensed and trained to do. And it can pick up the slack. In uh, Arizona, for example, years ago, they basically removed the geographic limit, uh, which basically said you, ha- you as a nurse can only practice within so many miles of the physician whom, to whom you are, in effect, 
indentured. And um, guess what? Lots of nurses moved to the rural areas because they were now free to do so. I mean, it was a very large increase in the availability of, of healthcare services in those areas. And, um, you know, every little bit counts. Now, I don't want to disparage physicians. Um, and I have to admit, my wife and I both tend to have a bias in favor of seeing the doctor rather than the nurse or the, the PA. But, but uh, that's just our preference as patients. We do think that people should have choices. What extent, another question coming in, are the foreign, quote unquote, doctors taking up the slack? I keep coming back to this word slack, which uh, maybe is applicable, maybe it isn't, maybe not the right word. But increasingly we see, and they're good guys. I mean, they're good doctors. I mean, they are very well trained. They're, they, they, they're very smart. They tend to show up in a, in a very rare, uh, specialized specialties. Um, right. We're getting more and more of them, are we not? Well, not as many as we ideally would. Foreign trained physicians and other uh, clinicians can be a great help. And uh, what, but what happens is states... Uh, the state government authorizes the, say, medical board or the nurses board uh, to, in effect, regulate that profession within the state. And one of the things they do is they tend to set up rules that only recognize you if you uh, have been licensed in the state. You basically they don't trust any other jurisdiction. And it's not, it's not like driver's licenses where basically your driver's license is good in all 50 states. They don't make you take another driver's test when you cross a state line. Um, we at Americans for Prosperity think it should be like that with, uh, with medical licenses and other professional licenses, as long as you, in fact, have completed the training and have passed uh, a, a credible test somewhere, you've been licensed somewhere, why not recognize that and allow folks uh, to practice within your jurisdiction? But to, to, to fix this, you really need each state to lower the barriers so that foreign trained clinicians can come in and train. And foreign in this case should also mean from other states. You should allow, you know, folks from other states to come in. And, you know, a lot of the existing nurses and doctors don't like that because that's just more competition. But from the patient's perspective, it's a very good thing. More competition is good. Yeah, I learned something. I didn't know that the even coming from another state was restricted. I thought maybe coming from another country, um, but you know, coming from another state is a kind of an interesting. Uh, yeah. I, I, what What's the feeling about that? It's uh, just antiquated. Um, needs to be looked at and revised. Could be a simple fix if somebody paid closer attention to it. Or, well, we we have been speaking with state uh, policymakers for years about this, and we have you know, form coalitions, for example, with nurse practitioners, with physician assistants, uh, to make sure that they are able to do the maximum that they're trained to do. We wouldn't want them doing anything that, for which they're not qualified. Um, and we do get resistance from physicians, for example, who, uh, you know, they it's more competition for them. Um, now, to be fair, the, the physicians will say, well, look, if you're going to practice medicine without a, an MD or a DO uh, designation, you should face as much liability as we physicians bear. You know, we, we're bearing all the liability here. If you're going to practice medicine, too, you need to bear the liability, too. And we, we don't argue with that. I mean, that's right. If, you know, if you have the responsibility, you should you should be, you know, live, uh, you should be held accountable, you know, for your mistakes. 
Uh, we do, by the way, support uh, reasonable tort reforms. Um, these should be done at the state level, and they should basically make it so that um, practitioners are held accountable for their mistakes, but it shouldn't be, you know, kind of a trial lawyer's bonanza, which simply drives up the cost of health care uh, for everybody. Is there a lot of that unnecessary um, legal challenges to? There's, uh, you know, there's different, uh, there's a whole literature on this is how much is uh, litigation and trial lawyers, how much are they driving up the cost of medicine? Um, I think uh, my sense is that basically there is a cost. It may be exaggerated in some people's account. Um, And then there are questions about, well, which kinds of reforms actually lead to lower costs and, you know, less of that defensive medicine you mentioned, you know, where the physician's doing every possible test to try to, you know, make sure he doesn't get sued. Um, There's a whole debate about this. I would say uh, the important thing is that every jurisdiction should just set reasonable rules that ensure that professionals are held accountable for their mistakes. And um, that will give them the right incentive to do a good job for their customers. But it's also important that the patient be the customer. I keep coming back to this, but it's the fundamental problem in our healthcare system. And if we fix this problem, then we're not going to go down the road. Uh, to, to Great Britain and socialized medicine, then we will kind of, you know, make a turn. But we've got to get it right. We've got to put the patient in charge. And uh, at AFP, we talk about, uh, you know, a three-point approach. We call it the personal option for short. And it means three things. It means, uh, you know, empowering patients rather than insurance companies, as I mentioned earlier. It means letting every American save and pay for healthcare tax-free with a health savings account. So we're all on a level playing field with the companies, for example, that get a tax break for healthcare. Everybody should basically get that same tax break, but the patient is in charge, HSAs for all. And then the third thing is remove barriers between patients and the medical professionals they trust so that doctors and patients can get together. We, we really believe that markets work in healthcare if you let them, and we know this. I mean, cosmetic surgery, laser eye surgery, cash pay medicine like the surgery center of oklahoma which only takes you know cash it doesn't take insurance guess what high quality uh fully transparent prices prices are all in prices no hidden charges or fees in other words the market works when you let it yeah that was mentioned oklahoma was mentioned here in the chat line i saw it's interesting that you brought that up cross-referenced with it um been talking with dean clancy uh, who comes up to the show every now and then to give us an update on what's going on with advocacy for really patients' uh, best possible medical care we can get in this country when guys like me are kind of wary about that because I see us slipping in, into Britain and Canada and socialized medicine and lack of freedom for the doctors, which is not good for the patients and a whole bag of uh, worms there, can of worms we want. And, um, uh, those of you who are watching, we do have shows now and then. Uh, this is from the point of view of uh, policy, senior policy people advocating for us. Sometimes we have physicians on who are also frustrated and willing to talk about what they experienced. And all of us in one shape or another is a patient. Uh, some of you are fortunate you haven't been much of one, and others will be unfortunate, less fortunate, but they've got medical people uh, around. Um Anything you want to wind down with? We've got about four or five minutes left here, Dean, that you want to – you did an excellent summary a moment ago 
on uh, what what uh, really is the basic thrust of what you do. Um, you're going to have to talk me out of my skepticism, though, my man. I just, <laughs> I, 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 listen, my wife says I'm a, a glass half full. She's a glass, glass half, uh, I mean, half full. I'm half empty. She's half full. And um, I don't know, man. I, I feel like... Uh, it's, well, you know, yeah, I, look, um, I try to be uh, an optimist about this stuff because I think the laws of human nature don't change. The laws of economics and politics don't change. It's just we're up against real challenges. There's always hope is my line. But I have to admit, sometimes I think it's always better to be a pessimist because then you are always <laughs> either right or pleasantly <laughs> surprised. <you know? laughs> I want to I want to steal that argument. That's pretty good. It's always best to be a pessimist. Oh my golly! Well, uh, but anyway, if I could, uh, just to, you know, just to wrap up, and you've been so generous with your time. Thank you. Uh, I hope this has been helpful to folks. I, I would encourage folks to visit a little website we've set up on these issues called personaloption.com. Personaloption.com. We explain what we're trying to do to reform healthcare and prevent us from going to socialized medicine, and we also give you a chance to get updates and maybe even get involved help, you know, um, communicate with your policymakers about these issues. It's the thing that has the biggest impact on lawmakers and politicians is hearing from their own constituents about issues. So, you know, personaloption.com, please get involved. We'll see if production can put that in the chat line here. Therefore, I'll be there for people. Put personaloptions.com. Personaloption.com, singular, yeah. Personaloption.com, singular. Okay, great. Well, Dane, thanks for stopping by. And, uh, Check in with us from time to time, and uh, hopefully this thing sees the light of day. And Biden has to eat crow on it. And yeah, you know, I know he's just all everything he's doing is political. I hate to say that, but it's not based on any other reason than that. I can see that maybe I'm missing something, but um, a lot of things are getting politicized that shouldn't be politicized. Let's put it that way. Thanks so much for stopping by. I hope you have a great day. We've been talking with Dean Clancy. And uh, from time to time, Dean stops by with us and has a chat with us. And uh, we'll try to keep you up to date whenever he's available again. Thanks so much and have a great day, Dean. Um, Thank you. It was my pleasure. um, Warthog Command Center out. 